All right, let's gear up and start the mission. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode maybe 19 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. This week, which is halfway through October, I find that hard to believe, especially with publishing three books in three months at the end of the year. It seems like time is running out, but things are going smoothly. Of course, book one debuted on October 1st, and book two, which I'm reading from, will debut on November 1st. And today, I just prepped the files for book three. So we're moving along. In this session, I'm going to be reading from, oh, about the first third of Dangerous Truths, book two of Self-Inflicted Wounds. We've already established that Alexei survived his wounding and his fall into the Danube, but after he and Mai talk about it and put their stories together, they realize that the only way that someone would have attacked him for apparently no reason was that he'd been burned. So they decide, even though he's very weakened by his blood loss, they're going to have to go back over all the locations where they might have had an interaction or have been observed by these Russian mercenaries who are responsible for the various acts of violence in Yugoslavia. So with Belgrade Police Commandant uh, Renovacic with them to give them some official mien, they go back to Novi Sad, which was the scene in the first book of a murder of a provincial governor that Mai was going to prevent. But at the time, Alexei wasn't certain what her mission was in Belgrade. Remember, Nelson sent her there without telling Alexei where she was going. And um, Alexei went there without telling Mai where he was going. And so he came to an inaccurate conclusion about what her purpose was with the provincial governor of Novi Sad. So they go back there. They start there to see if on the day of that assassination, there was somebody in the crowd who was maybe unusual, maybe didn't belong there, to see if they can get a clue as to who might have observed them, and who might have burned Alexei to the Russians. So that's where we're going to start our reading from Self-Inflicted Wounds, Book 2, Dangerous Truths. Chapter 14, Unusual Customers. Until Alexei Bukharin got into the car, Renovicich didn't believe the man had the strength to sit up, much less ride, to Novisad. Bukorin slumped in the back seat, Maia beside him, 
his eyes were closed, and Renovasich hoped at least he dozed. If that surprised Renovasich, he was amazed when Bukharin kept up with him and Maia during the tedious process of canvassing every stall, food vendor, and coffee shop around the spot where Bosko Perosevich had met his end. However, it didn't surprise Renovasich they learned nothing new. The agricultural fair had been full of strangers, after all. An elderly man who smoked his afternoons away in the park, agricultural fair or not, had witnessed the shooting and demonstrated his good eyesight. He identified Alexei as the man who had checked Perosevich's pulse and told the gawkers to call the police. He remembered seeing Maia chasing a cab down the street, but nothing about Russians. Well, am I supposed to tell who is a Russian and who is not? he asked. Expensive clothes, lots of jewelry or tattoos, fleshy cars, Alexei said. Well, that is mafia, Balkan or Russian, who can tell? The old man said and shrugged. The last place to survey was a coffee shop with no more than a half dozen tables and an older woman behind the counter pumping strong coffee from an ancient espresso machine or tea from an equally antique samovar. That prompted Alexei to ask the woman if she had Russian customers. Am I expected to answer questions for free? She replied and turned her back. Renovasich was out of his jurisdiction, but sometimes a uniform could do wonders. However, Alexei motioned to a table by the sole window in the coffee shop. The three of them sat, and a waitress hustled over. She was quick to deliver tea for Mai and Alexei, and an espresso for Renovasich. Alexei pushed his sunglasses to the top of his head and rubbed his weary, red-rimmed eyes. Renovasich decided they would rest a bit before questioning the waitress. Um, you two did not mention you were here when Porosevich was shot. Renovasich said. Didn't we? replied Maia. I thought we had. Must have slipped my mind. Care to elaborate now? It's a, a long story. Renovasich glanced at Alexei, again slouching, his tea untouched, eyes closed. Renovasich looked at Mai. We have time, he said. Mai nodded her thanks. Well, it's a bit boring, but here it is. Renovasich suspected she'd edited the story she told him, but she was thorough. Alexei stirred, opened his eyes, and sipped some tea. Take a look out this window, he said. Yes, said Maia, a perfect angle to view the entire Porosevich event. Which means when you tailed Gudovich and noted him hanging around the exhibition at that spot. It was because he was told to shoot Perosevich there. So his handlers could watch and confirm. Almost as if Renovasich weren't there, Alexei turned to his partner, his wife. We can't wait for them to start up again. Sooner rather than later, they'll figure out I'm not dead and that they're close to being exposed. He looked at Renovasich. 
I'll give you physical descriptions of the men I saw at White Nights. Do you have a police sketch artist or a computer program? You are joking, right? And art student from a local academy will do. The waitress returned to ask about refills, and Renovasich ordered a second cup. When she returned with it, Renovasich said, Please, I have some questions for you. Her eyes widened, and she retreated a step. What, uh, what have I done? Nothing, Renovasich said. Were you working here the day Governor Perosovich was killed? Yes, he was shot right over there, she replied, pointing. Yes, he was shot right over there, she replied, pointing. I only heard the shot, sir. I thought it was a car or a piece of farmer machinery. Yes, he was shot right over there, she replied, pointing. But I only heard the shot, sir. I thought it was a car or a piece of farm machinery backfiring. I already told the police this the day it happened. As she'd spoken, her eyes had stayed on Alexei, not Renovasich. Anything unusual about your customers that day? Renovasich asked. What do you mean unusual? Did anyone stand out? No, sir. Everyone was a regular? Yes, sir. She frowned and added, Oh, no, there was one person I'd never seen before. She looked away, blushing. He was interesting. How so? Nice clothes, expensive, good-looking. She blushed again, looking away. I, I flirted with him. Where did he sit? At this same table. You flirted with him, you said. Yes, sir, but there is nothing wrong with that. I did not say there was. I did not say there was. Did he give you his name or phone number? Her eyes looked at her feet again. No, sir. I gave him my number, though. Did he call you? No, sir. Has he been back since? No, sir. Here, look at me. Tell me what he looked like. Tall, a little short of two meters, Crew-cut, but dark hair, high cheekbones. He was Russian. How do you know that? Alexei cut in, making the waitress jump. M my my mother was a translator at the Olympic Games. She speaks Russian and taught me some. This man spoke Serbian, but not well. So I spoke to him in Russian. And we chatted. Like I said, I flirted. That could be anyone who spoke Russian. Renovasich said. Give me something useful. That is all I can remember, sir. Renovasich scowled at her. If you can't remember now, you'll remember at the police station. Her eyes filled with tears, but she collected herself, nodding toward Alexei. Eyes like his, she said. Blue, you mean? Renovasich asked. No, sir. Exactly like his eyes, the same. The same shape, same eyebrows, except his had no scar. Like glacier eyes sometimes, then darker, like his. He is not the one? No, sir. This one was young. His gaze intent on her, Alexei asked. How old was he? 
mid-twenties, no more than thirty. His hands, did you notice them? Yes. Oh, yes, his left pinky finger was missing. Alexei said, almost a bark, We're finished here, and stood. He swayed, and Maya grasped his arm. He threw money on the table, jerked his arm free, and left the cafe. Renovasich thanked the woman, and he and Maya hustled after Alexei. What, what is it? Renovasich asked Maya. Does he know who it is? I don't know. Does it sound like anyone you know? Let's let Alexei explain, please. Bukharin was already in the back seat, head back, eyes closed. Maia got in beside him as Renovasich climbed behind the wheel. Bukharin, do you know this man? Yes. One of the Russians from White Knights? No. Look, you cannot withhold information from me. I'm not withholding anything, Alexei said. I'm not saying anything else until I'm sure. Right, Renovasich muttered. He faced front and started the car. No one spoke all the way back to Belgrade. Chapter 15 Leverage Renovasich followed Mai and Alexei inside the house, but Alexei trudged up the stairs to the bedroom. Mai watched him go, but didn't follow. She forestalled Renovasich's questions with, As soon as I know something, I'll contact you. Twelve hours, and I'll be back, Renovasich said. He nodded to the policeman he'd left there to watch Pishkatova, and they left. I cleaned, Pishkatova said. I made the beds. I swept the floor. Go up to your room, Mai said. Why? Because I said so. To your room, nowhere else. Mai waited until she heard the door to the second bedroom slam before she went to the kitchen for tea. No, hell, she wanted whiskey. The kitchen was clean, the table and counters shining, the dishes from that morning's breakfast washed and put away. Regardless, Pishkatova was out of here. Today, if she could work it out. Tomorrow, if not. Mai took a small glass and poured three fingers of Jameson. She sat at the table and waited. When she heard Alexei's footsteps coming down the stairs, Mai put the whiskey away and washed the glass. Alexei entered, still slumped, his face tight, drawn. Not good news, then. He sat at the table, dry-washing his face. Mai sat to his left. What did you find out? Mai asked, keeping her tone neutral, her voice soft. My nephew Kolya is on indefinite leave from his peacekeeping duties for a project so classified no one knows what it is. His brother Sasha deserted from his unit in Chechnya. My sister hasn't heard from either of them in six months and the army never told her Sasha had deserted because that's bad press. Kolya's wife was pissed to find out he was on leave since she hasn't seen him for several months either. 
however. He's been calling her once a week as usual and said nothing about being anywhere except Bosnia. His hands, flat on the table surface, coiled into fists. Skimsin, he muttered. I'll throttle both of them when I get my hands on them, especially Kolya, if they're all I've done for him. Someone recruited Kolya, or told him this was an official operation, I said. This is not like him. I don't care. He will pay for trying to have me killed. Alexei, Kolya wouldn't order that. The persistent pain in my side tells me otherwise. Let's figure out how to get him in our custody, and we'll find his motivation. My, I'm not being reasonable about this. All I've done for my family, all I gave up, and those two, they threw it away. Probably for money, blood money. You will not buy their way out of this. I will personally haul the two of them to Ranovasich's jail. Alexei, no! His fist struck the table. I've told you time and again I want out of this. You dragged me back and I find out my own blood is working against me. Does that make you happy? Are you satisfied now? He rose, still unsteady, but she offered no hand to help. He went to the sink, filled the kettle, and put it on the stove. The tick-tick of the burner before it lit filled the silence. I'm angry, he murmured, his back to her. I was rude. Ignore me. Not first time for either of us, she said. He turned, supported himself by leaning against the counter. In the harsh fluorescent light of the kitchen, the lines in his face were deeper, and his skin had a grayish-green cast that disturbed her. I want this mission to be the last one. For both of us, he said. She fought back the resentment his words engendered. He'd come here for her, to be with her, and he'd almost died because of her. When this mission is over, she said, we are going to have a long, serious talk about the future. Will I like the outcome? he asked. You might, but until then let me advise my partner what I'll be doing the next few days while he rests, and I mean rests, and recovers his blood volume. Oddly enough, you won't be getting an argument from me over that. The kettle began to whistle. Sit, Mai said, I'll fix you some tea. His smile was brief. The things I do to get you to wait on me, he said. Don't get used to it, Bokerin, she replied, but smile too. She rejoined him at the table with two mugs of tea, his sweetened, hers with milk. They touched mugs and drank. Since Nelson kept us both in the dark about why we're each here, you don't know about the other part of my mission, Mai said. I do not. If I can prove he's not part of a coalition of opposition groups who might be behind these murders, I'm to convince Stanimir Atelievich to run for president in next year's election. Not Gingrich? She thumbnailed Nelson's reasoning for Atelievich. Good luck with that, Alexei said. What I know of Atelievich, and granted that's little, 
he thinks he'll have more leverage by boycotting. Mai told him what state would put on the table. Again? Good luck. Yes, she said. I agree it's not likely to happen, especially since the only way I could find to contact him for a meet is through Jinjich, who'll be royally pissed he's not the one I'm talking to. Offer him something to placate his ego? He explained an idea, grinning at her. No, I haven't lost it. I was going to offer him something, but not that, and yes, you still have it. He tapped his temple. Up here, yes. The rest of this decrepit carcass disagrees. Don't, she murmured, images of bodies floating in the Danube coming to her. Don't say carcass. It bothers me. And yes, the Ice Queen is moved by something, but no snide remarks from you. His hand cupped her cheek, and she told herself it was her imagination it was cold. His thumb brushed her cheek, and she hoped she hadn't shed a tear. When I spoke with Galena, he said, I suggested she come here. More leverage? Mai asked. Not the usual way we use it. You said it earlier. We have to figure out how to get Kolya in custody. The one person he'll come running to is his wife. She's the only one who'll be able to convince him to give this up. My plane's on the way here to take me to Berlin. I have some questions for the CIA, and depending on the outcome of my talk with Italievich, I may need to give Nelson a face-to-face -face report. By the way, Pishkatova's gone, as soon as possible. Alexei shrugged and said, a bit too quickly, I don't care where she goes. Why not send your plane to Frankfurt to pick up Galena and bring her here? You can go first class to Berlin, with Hansa's excellent. Her hand came to rest on his forearm. And you'll rest while I'm arranging all this. His hand covered hers. I will. Who knows? By the time you finish, maybe... He waggled an eyebrow at her. Oh, you're better, if that's what you're thinking about, Bukharin. All right, let's take a little break here. Do the commercial thing. Book one of Self-Inflicted Wounds, Welcome to Belgrade, has been out for two weeks as you're listening to this. It debuted on October 1st, and it's available for sale either as a Kindle file or as a paperback. And you can get them at Amazon. And book two, which I'm reading from, Dangerous Truths, is available for pre-order for your Kindle. If you pre-order it, that means on November the 1st, it will show up in your Kindle magically and will be ready for you to start reading. I had one of my readers who calls herself my super fan, which is really cool, sent me a message that told me that she stayed up until midnight to read Welcome to Belgrade and that she was very, very mad at me because she wanted about 10 pages more because she needed to know what happened and that she was going to get her daughter-in-law to order her a copy right away so she would get book two as soon as possible. So that was a pretty cool message to get. So glad that there are some people out there who get my writing and who are eager 
for me to write more. If you want to pre-order Dangerous Truths, you can go to tinyurl.com slash dtpreorder. And the D, the T, and the P are capitalized. And of course, tell your friends about this podcast if you think they would enjoy hearing about the writing life and about spies and about writing about spies. I'd be happy to have more of an audience. I mean, it's growing slowly, and I appreciate the fact that it's doing that, which means I appreciate that you all are listening. I jokingly refer to this as my babbling on, and so I'll try to bring this to an end pretty soon. So the these last two chapters give you a little peek into my and Alexei's working relationship. They've quite often said that they are best when they're working together. And that was the whole point of Mize practically blackmailing him to get him to come out of semi-retirement to work another mission with her. He had taken a position as an advisor at The Hague, where the International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia was holding court. And because he and Mai had been in the Balkans during that time, and they had witnessed so much of what was happening, he was the perfect person to be an advisor there. It's a desk job. And initially, the tribunal created a job for Mai, so they could be together. She was the head of court security, meaning that she oversaw the people who were the guards of the various people on trial there, and she made sure the court was secure, handled any threats that might have been made toward the judges or the prosecutors. A, a job she was qualified for, but a job she hated because she, as she said, she couldn't make a difference. And she basically did it for him. But after maybe a year, 18 months of doing it, she just couldn't do it anymore. So on um, New Year's Eve, 1999, she basically leaves him a note on her pillow that said that she can't do the desk job anymore and that she's going back to making a difference. So until he shows up, well, in, in book one, there's a scene where there's a little story arc where she is accused of three of the murders and hauled to the, to the tribunal. Those charges are proved to be invalid and she's released. And they have a little bit of a reunion and this is when they go back to directorate headquarters and Nelson assigns her the mission of going to Belgrade to try and find out who's committing these series of political murders and to convince this candidate to run against Milosevic. So Alexei, who's not quite certain that dismissing the charges against her 
was a good idea, he suspects she might be involved somehow in these murders. He decides he wants to follow her, and Nelson, the head of the directorate, agrees to let him go and not tell Mai he's going to be there. And of course, she says to Nelson, there's no need to tell Alexei precisely where I'm going. So they don't know each other is in the, in the, in Belgrade until this encounter with the provincial governor of Novi Sad, Bosko Perosovic, and his murder. Again, they do their best work together. I base it a lot on a working relationship I had at my old job with the federal government. There were several people I worked with that we just meshed completely. And when we were working a project, usually a regulatory project, or the response to an accident or a, a regulatory finding, we could bring our talents together and generate something pretty quickly, something that was workable. And the, th the three of us loved working together on these projects. And, and because we were successful with other projects that had been given us, they always came to us. <laughs> well, one person got promoted to a different job and it really, it didn't damage the dynamic, but it changed the dynamic. And the two of us who were left, we still worked well together, but we missed, we missed that third element. And we, we would exchange roles. You know, one time I'd be the devil's advocate and another time one of the other people would be. And it was just a very good symbiotic relationship. And we felt like we did good work for the American taxpayer. So I base their working relationship a lot on that. And their personal relationship, I'll talk another time about what's, what that's based on without getting too terribly personal. But one of the things that has always colored both their personal and professional relationship is the fact that Alexei uses people in his work, particularly women. Now, he used to use these women sexually to get them to do what he needed or to get information from them. And that was always an issue between him and Mai because he continued it even after they married. He's backed away from that, but she always suspects the worst when becomes known that there's a woman involved somehow with him. And so that's why she wants this Irina Pishkatova, the stripper from White Knights, out of the house, out of Belgrade, out of Yugoslavia, the sooner the better. So let's pick back up reading where we learn Irina Pishkatova's fate. Self-inflicted wounds, dangerous truths, Chapter 16, Dynamics of a Man and a Woman When Irina Pishkatova woke in Alexei Bukharin's house, everything was so quiet she thought she must be alone. 
The good-sized bedroom had its own bath. A soak in the large tub would be nice, but the silence was perhaps an opportunity. She washed herself in the sink and redressed in the clothes she'd worn for at least three days. She opened the door to the guest room and peered down the hallway at the larger bedroom where Bukharin and his... and the other person slept. The door was closed. She tiptoed down the stairs. No policeman, nor was there one outside. Nothing to stop her from leaving and going back to her place, except she had no money for a cab or tram, the woman having taken her purse, which also held the keys to her flat. No matter, she could walk, and if she had to give the building manager a blowjob to get inside her apartment, so be it. You're up early, said someone from behind her. With a yelp, Irina spun around. Bukharin, in sweatpants and a long-sleeved pullover, unshaven. He remained so very pale. I didn't mean to frighten you, he said with a smile. Planning your escape? I do not see why I can't go to my place. I inadvertently involved you in something you shouldn't have known about. Best you get out of Belgrade. But I could stay here, be your nurse. Aha, no. That's not a good idea. She thrust her chin up in a challenge. Why? Because you do not trust yourself? Or she does not trust you? Neither. Pyotr at White Nights by now knows you've broken your contract. You'll be safer somewhere other than Belgrade. Irina shook her head. You do not understand fully how this works. I owe a debt to Pyotr. My leaving Belgrade does not mean he won't go to great lengths to make sure I pay it. Mai is taking care of that. But why? She hates me. Because she and I abhor the fact that women from my home country are being exploited this way all over the world. We can't save everyone, but sometimes, in a few places, we can make a small difference. I do not need saving. You saw what the Russians did to me. Trust me. If they're told to, they'll do the same to your pretty throat. His voice had changed, slipped from being soft and concerned to rock-hard ice. She embraced herself and rubbed her arms to ease the goose flesh. Come, sit. I'll fix you some breakfast, he said, kind again. No. That is all I will need is to have her come downstairs and see us all cozy in the kitchen. Oh, she's gone to do some shopping for you. For me? Some clothes, toiletries, a suitcase for your trip. When you arrive in Amsterdam, someone will meet you. Have you examined by a doctor to make certain you're okay? They'll find you a place to stay, or you can contact your lover there. I made that up. Well, one of my jobs at White Nights was to do dirty talk in a chat room with another girl who owes Piotr, and people paid to watch me, um, pleasure myself. That is the only way I know her. He wasn't embarrassed, but he was a worldly man. Then a place for you and a real job, he said. Perhaps your pharmacy training can be put to good use again. 
and you could maybe visit? No, Devashka, that would not be possible. She didn't know why that made her want to cry, but wanting to cry also made her angry. You are nothing but a... a... Kanja. Why am I a hypocrite? Because... because when you were at my place, you called for a woman, not your wife, Sofia. His eyes glistened, and he looked away for a moment. I asked for her. Da, da, who is she? I thought I saw her, that she'd come for me. He sighed and said, she died a long time ago. Endlessly fascinated by such unusual things, Irina asked, Do you think it was her ghost who came to you? No, he said, smiling at her. It's that you look like her, like I remember her, young and beautiful. Sophia and I were supposed to be together forever, but she died before she was 21 years old. Tears filled Irina's eyes again. I am sorry. Don't be. It was a pleasant memory, and I thank you for it. Here, I'm fixing myself breakfast. I'll make enough to share. He went into the kitchen. Irina looked at the front door. If she were to run, he'd never be able to catch her. The dynamics of a man and a woman were too deep to fathom sometimes, but she couldn't go back to Russia. She couldn't stay in Belgrade. Amsterdam would have to be a new beginning, but she could still dream of a tall, older man who treated her with respect. That could get her through almost anything. Irina turned her back to the door and followed Alexei Bukharin into the kitchen. Chapter 17 Kindness and Respect At the gate where she waited for the airplane, Irina clutched her new carry-on bag and tried to make herself as small as possible. The expensive leather carry-on was soft and elegant. Inside were outfits Irina never thought my Fisher with her utilitarian all-black wardrobe would select. Fragrant shampoo and conditioner, the expensive kind, the kind that was good for your bleached hair, sumptuous face and body creams and understated makeup. It all made Irina feel human again, even if she didn't want to be grateful to the hard-nosed Englishwoman. The policeman on either side of her, her escort to the plane, dwarfed her. Rather than making her less noticeable, their presence made people stare. And the policeman treated her as if she were being kicked out of Belgrade as an undesirable. Of course, she wanted to be away from white knights. But she felt as if a hand in the middle of her back pushed her onto the airplane. She'd done nothing except help a casual acquaintance, and everyone treated her like a whore. Everyone except... There is no escaping the fact you are a whore, she reminded herself. But from now on, she would be a former whore. A woman walked by, looked at Irina seated between the two policemen, and got a look on her face as if she'd smelled shit. 
Irina wanted to shout, It's not my fault! Not her fault her drunken parents had committed suicide after the breakup of the Soviet Union. They couldn't cope without communism and descended into cheap bathtub vodka like many of their contemporaries, culminating in the mutual suicide pact. Her father had used an old World War II pistol. Her mother had taken a warm bath and slit her wrists. Irina had found them both. Her father's face had frozen in astonishment, as if the evaporation of the back of his head was something he hadn't counted on. Her mother looked relaxed, even beautiful. The harsh lines the vodka had etched, erased. Not her fault that at that vulnerable time she'd fallen in love with a man who turned out to be a mafia drug dealer, that she hadn't known he'd steal her keys and rob the pharmacy where she worked. Not her fault she'd been fired for that. He'd promised to take care of her, and being a gangster's woman was better than living on the streets. Instead, he'd sold her to his boss, who shipped her to Belgrade to work at White Nights. She'd vowed never to trust a man again. But Alexei Bukharin had shown her the first kindness and respect in a long time. So had his wife. That wasn't really kindness. That was expediency. Irina suspected Fisher's generosity was more removing a temptation from her husband than altruism. So here she sat, waiting for a plane to take her to a place she'd never been, to people who would help her. But for what price? A couple, an odd one because the woman was much older than the man, walked past where Irina and the policeman sat. They were arm in arm, eyes only for each other. Irina sighed and longed for that, to walk arm in arm with a tall, older man with ice-blue eyes. Her sigh was matched by one from one of the policemen. Arms crossed over his chest, he seemed put out by this duty. The other one had slouched in the uncomfortable waiting area seat, legs splayed before him as he snored. Irina looked at the time. Fifteen minutes before boarding. They wouldn't have to put up with her much longer, nor she them. Irina sensed a movement behind her and turned. The couple she'd seen earlier, still hand in hand, stared out a window overlooking the tarmac. Irina smiled and turned back around. Maybe love had nothing to do with age differences. She heard a soft, coughing sound and felt something strike the right side of her face. The same sound on the other side. One policeman pitched forward and hit the floor, his head making a cracking sound. Irina saw a trickle of blood from his mouth. His eyes were wide and glazed. The other one slid from his chair to a sitting position on the floor, chin on his chest. Irina looked down, blood and other things, bits of gray matter, decorated the leather bag and her arms. Scream, she told herself, scream. 
she inhaled a deep breath to do that. But two bullets from a twenty-two caliber handgun entered her brain, shattering and bouncing around inside her skull. She glided to the floor as well, still clutching the bag. Her face remained intact, still beautiful, the look of surprise similar to her father's. All right, we'll stop there. I think that's a pretty good episode of Real Spies, Real Lives. Kind of gory, but typical for things that were happening in Yugoslavia at that time, 20 years ago. So next week, we'll delve a little deeper into the book. And in the meantime, you guys stay safe, wear your masks, remember six feet apart, and keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.